Continue the work. You are urged to continue the work, to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion. Now let's just pause for a minute and, and think about this, this one, this passage. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. You do have an adversary. And I don't know if you've ever watched lions hunt, but they're lazy. They pick off the weak and the feeble and alone. They don't bother going to a whole pack. Unless they're starving, they're not going to attack a group. They try to find the weakest one and they try to take it down. Why? Because it takes less work. So let's remember that one of the urgings of the New Testament is that you would be a part of a community of faith that would be rallying around you and hold you up. Just like Nehemiah here with his brothers on the wall and they've got some holding swords and some building the wall. They've got this team working together to pursue gospel advance, to pursue kingdom advance. Likewise, we do the same. And no one, will, no one will be able to help you if they don't know you. They don't hear you. They don't see you. They don't know what's going on. They have to see the work. They have to know what's there. So be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. The adversary's attack, however... Should not, should not stop your pursuit of holiness. We get back to work on the wall. This is the first lesson, really easy application here. When the adversary attacks, God frustrates their plans, we get back to work. We get back to work. We let the dogs bark and we keep working on the wall. Now, second here, we saw the plan of opposition. Now we see the division of the labor in verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. So you've got this structure here where half guard, half labor. So half guard and half labor. And, and some are holding shovels. Some are holding shovels. Yeah, if you were asleep, you woke up. Some are holding shovels, right? And they're digging. They're putting things on the wall. They're doing this. And some are holding weapons. They're holding weapons. I just want you to see, later on we're going to hear they were working with their work in one hand and their weapon in the other. I want you to see how hard it is to do this alone. Like, i got to shovel something while I'm holding a sword. You know, if I get attacked with this and I have to wave it while I'm trying to shovel something. You see how difficult this is. So Nehemiah wisely has people who are only holding swords and people who are only holding shovels. Everyone's armed. All of them have weapons. All of them are able to defend themselves. But we have brothers who are holding swords and brothers who are holding shovels. If I were to try and do all of my Christian life by myself, with no one standing by me. I'd be really hard. I'd spend all my time doing one or the other. Because eventually I'm going to have to put one down. But if I have brothers who are watching my back with the sword. And I'm laboring in the gospel with the shovel. We all are one body in Christ. And we can work this way. We are to share the labor. We are to share the load. We are to... 
We are to watch each other's back in love and kindness and to, to ask hard questions. No man I've ever met with likes when I ask them how their eye gate is. You know what an eye gate is? That's this, like protecting what comes into your eyes. It's one of my favorite questions to ask because it's a polite way of asking, are they keeping their mind and heart pure? And it's not too invasive. But no man ever likes being honest in that question really badly. But when they are honest, I can help with the sword. I can watch their back. I can pray for them. I can ask them, well, when is that happening the most? How can I help you? Do I need to call you at the times when you're by yourself? Do we need to check in on each other? What are some things I can do to help you overcome this? How can I intertwine my life with you? And some of you know this about me, that I mean it when I say that. And I expect you to mean it when you say it to me. And some of you know that I'll call you in the middle of the night if you ask me. If you say, well, what I really need is somebody to wake up at 2 a.m. and call me. I'll be like, I hate that idea, but I'll do it. We watch each other's back. Some of us are digging. Some of us are putting things on the wall. There's an order here that Nehemiah proposes. He puts guards with the people. And the people working on the wall have a guard behind them. And he divides them in half. And so the question then arises, how do we guard one another? How do we as Christians model this same thing that Nehemiah is doing here in the book of Nehemiah chapter 4? Well, first I think it's obvious. We pray, right? pray. It's, that's obvious because Nehemiah has done it over and over. Remember James chapter 6, I mean chapter 5 verse 16 and James chapter 5 verse 13. If anyone is suffering, he must pray. If anyone is cheerful, he must sing praise. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of William Booth, the founder of the, uh, the Salvation Army. He preached in East London uh, for years and what he would do is he'd set up these big tents and a stage. He'd set up a stage and he'd walk through the bars and the pubs of East London, which was the, the poorest, kind of roughest area. He went, he went against all, he was a great preacher, and he went to the, the diocese or whatever it was, the presbyter, and he said, I want to preach in East London. And they said, no, you're too good a preacher. How about you preach in this rich area of town over here, and we'll send somebody else to East London. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to East London. And he left, and he went to East London, and he starts pre- preaching, and he has this guy show up and join his group named John Lawley. Lawley. John Lawley would literally climb under the stage and pray while William Booth was preaching. He'd climb under the stage and pray. This, is not, this isn't like a giant, it's like a handmade like soapbox size stage. It's this, he'd crawl underneath and he'd pray and he'd lay there praying. And there's a, there's a legend that grew up around this that William Booth was preaching once and he felt the audience drifting and he stomped on the stage and said pray harder and then he kept preaching and the people started to respond and William Booth said it's because of the prayers of John Lawley that any of my preaching was effective and I would echo the same thing I have preached multiple places multiple times all over I've preached to crowds that were huge. I've preached to crowds of three. Like we, we preach the gospel, and I will tell you that the most productive times of preaching are the times when my people are praying for me. So one way, how do we guard each other? We pray. 
We pray for each other's holiness. We pray for each other's righteousness. In the context of James, you are told to gather people around you and pray if you're sick. To pray if you're struggling with sin. For the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Right? This, is, this is prayer. We are to labor in prayer. So the first way that we guard each other is we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray. The first way we guard each other is pray for each other. Um, there are multiple other examples I'd love to run through my head and just give you all of them. But think about Charles Spurgeon who had a, uh, had a, a person come to his church and he kept talking about the heating apparatus of his church. The heating apparatus. And it was a news reporter who was asking him why his church was so successful. And he kept saying, it's the heating apparatus. And the, the, pe- the, guy, the guy thought it was a joke. He was like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, yeah, because people are cold in London. Ha, ha, ha. And so he takes him down to the basement and he opens the basement door. And there's a couple hundred people in the basement praying. And he says, this is the heating apparatus of the church. It's why the church is successful. Then you had Charles Finney who regardless of his theological errors and weirdness, he still had an incredibly effective, sudden, spontaneous, and miraculous ministry. And he attributed it to this random monk-like character who followed him from town to town and would pray in every town where he was going. Indeed, Billy Graham crusades were preceded by two weeks of people he sent to a city to spend hours upon hours in prayer with every church that he was going to engage. Prayer is the backbone of the Christian life. And it is the first and foremost way that we support one another. It is my privilege as a pastor to pray for you all the time. I love it. It is a hard, disciplined work. And it takes a lot of energy and effort. But I love doing it for you. And I love when you do it for me. Because this is how we watch each other's back. This is how we guard one another. We pray. And I want you to notice the second half of that, James 5.13. If anyone is cheerful, he must sing praise. Which leads us to our second thing that we can do. And it's going to sound weird, but sing. We sing together. We pray and we sing together. We sing praise. Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 19 talks about us living wisely and says we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Colossians 3.16, he repeats the same thing, saying, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are to sing over one another. We are to sing and make music. God did something when he created man in the heart of man. He made music matter. And I don't know why, except that he's smarter than me, and he understands the way things work. I think C.S. Lewis might have been right when he explained that creation is an act of God's beautiful symphony, and he is creating out of song. It wouldn't surprise me at all if when the Hebrew says something like, and God said, let there be light, if we, if we were there at the beginning, if it sounded like he was singing. It wouldn't surprise me at all because God has written music into the heart of man and man is the image of God. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Music speaks in levels that we can't possibly understand. In fact, I sometimes think that you listen to a song and there is something about musical notation that expresses the soul that words cannot. And it is beautiful and powerful and profound. And it is amazing music 
comes from our soul and, and we ought to give it to one another. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs over one another with each other. When you're singing, you're singing prayers and you're praying for one another. When you're singing together, you're worshiping one another. When you're reminding each other of truths that you have learned in songs because song also teaches better than anything else. I watch my kids and they can read a book and have a bunch of definitions. They'll never memorize those. But I play a song one time, every word. It's really bad when I play a song that I grew up with that I thought was fine and I play it and I go, oh no, and they've got it memorized. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, we're not going to listen to that one anymore. They're like, I like that part where it says, blah, 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 blah. don't say that out loud. <laughs> This is songs and hymns and spirituals. I'm a real person, by the way, if anybody thought otherwise. So we pray and we sing and then look the, the verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. At the beginning of the verse, teaching and admonishing each other in wisdom. Well, that's our next one. We pray, we sing, we teach and admonish. We teach and admonish one another. Admonish means to exhort, warn, comfort. I like that one. Exhort, warn, comfort. Instruct, that's what admonish means. You give instruction. It's literally the putting one's mind in the right place. That's what admonishment means. To put one's mind in the right place. To point out things that direct the mind to the right place. In our context, that would be pointing people to think about, ponder the things of Jesus Christ. That's what admonishing is. So look, teaching and admonishing each other in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we've got pray, sing, teach, admonish. And then we've got express gratitude. And I think you can find this everywhere in Scripture, all over. But one in particular is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever tried to stay anxious or angry when your friend who is standing next to you is thanking God for everything? I mean, literally, thanking God for everything. Or constantly telling you about positive things that they see in you. You're going, man, I just can't get this board straight. And they're going... I love that you try so hard to get that board straight. That's so great. That's so great. Get, thank, you know, thank God that there's somebody who thinks about getting the board straight. That guy both loves you and frustrates you. Right? This is family life. Man, I just had a really hard time. I was dealing with this guy and I said this thing and oh, I just I got so mad. And then the guy across from you goes, man, that passion you have is really cool. That's really great. I'm so glad you have that passion. That's, thanks, thank God that you have passion to be able to do that and to say that. And you were so direct. Man, I wish sometimes I could be that direct. Thank, thank, thank you. That's great. You know, and I struggle with that, but I thank the Lord that I'm struggling with it. That guy drives you nuts. And at the same time, at the same time, have you ever tried to stay angry when you're around that guy? Some of you are like, yes, John, I've tried to stay angry when I'm around you. <laughs> have you ever tried to stay angry when you're around that guy? You can't. Because they're constantly giving gratitude for you, for other people, for the life of the body, for Jesus, even for their own weaknesses. Even for their own weaknesses, they're trying to give you gratitude. So we pray, we sing, we teach and admonish, 
and we express gratitude. Gratitude brings us full circle again to teaching and admonishing. Sometimes you build, sometimes you defend. Whatever the case, we do this together. Sometimes you build, sometimes you defend. Whatever the case is, we do this together. So there, then in verse 16 and 17, he tells you it's half of them on the wall, half of them held spears. And then in verse 17, that Judah, the house of Judah is building on the wall and the leaders stood behind them. Uh, the best way to understand this idea of them standing behind is not so much a management position. Like they're not standing behind as managers over, looking over to make sure everything's done right. They're standing behind in defense, like support. Like if this spear needs sharpening, they're trading the spear out and going to sharpen the spear so they can offer support. If this guy needs more rocks, this leader is running over here to make sure he gets more rocks. That's what this standing behind here indicates, that the leaders of Judah are back behind them, kind of like messenger boys. Like, oh, you need more of this. I'm going to go get it, and they go get it and bring it back. If Oh, okay, I'm supporting you. You've got your spears are over here. We can see somewhere else. Okay, I see this over here. And they're acting as administrators, making sure everybody's equipped and ready to go. Gee, it sounds an awful lot like God gave prophets, evangelists, preachers, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the ministry of the church. Doesn't it sound an awful lot like that? This is the equipping of the ministry. Oh, you need this. We're going to do this over here. Oh, you need this equipping. We're going to go and equip you over here. I see this coming down the end. You guys ready for that over here? What do you need me to go get you? What do you need me to do? This isn't a management issue. This is an issue of equipping. So the leaders stand behind them and empowering the work by offering support however necessary. They're kind of a third layer of protection. So the first layer here is my sword and my skill. That's the first layer of protection. My own sword and my own skill. Each person carrying their own sword and their own shovel. And then the second layer is my brothers with the spears. My brothers with the spears who are commissioned to stand guard and help. And then the third layer is my leaders with their aid, with their help and their aid. We all have unique gifts and abilities, even ways to strategically think of things. We all have unique gifts and abilities, and, and there are abilities that you have that I do not. And there are abilities I have that you do not. And what makes the building of the kingdom so powerful is when we work together using your abilities and my abilities, your proclivities and my proclivities, your strengths and my strengths and my weaknesses and your weaknesses, and we put them together and we build the kingdom of God together, pursuing holiness together. There are many battalions in the army of God. You are right now at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, this battalion. There are other battalions that are working on other parts of the wall. But we all are working towards the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ being made known across the earth and his glory being spread everywhere. You have a job, you have a place. So for us individually, what does this look like? We've got servant leaders. We've got how we guard. Uh, then we've got this great commission in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. If you've never read Ephesians chapter 6, 
Putting on the armor of God is one thing that you get to read that's just a blast to read through and study through and a delight to do so. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Be strong in the Lord. Just like Nehemiah says, God frustrated their plans. So we recognize that our strength is in the Lord. Our strength is in Him, not in my hands, not in my talent. Doesn't matter how good at theology I am. Doesn't matter how erudite I am as a professor, a speaker, seminary, whatever. It doesn't matter. None of that matters if I don't have the love of Jesus Christ in me, pouring out of me. And if I have not been guarded by the armor of God, if I have not put on the armor of God, if I am not focusing on Him to pursue Him and pursue righteousness, doesn't matter my personal skill, it is in Him that I have strength. In Him that I have strength. Jesus used 11 fishermen. 11 uneducated men. He used the lowest. The one guy with a seminary degree is a murderer in the whole bunch. The one guy, he is a murderer in the whole bunch. So if Jesus can use Peter, James, and John, the sons of thunder who wanted to burn Samaria to the ground after Jesus had showed love to it, if he can use them, Pretty sure he can use you and me. Pretty sure if he can use Thomas, he can use you and I. If he can use Andrew, who's always counting people, and Philip, who doesn't, or Andrew, who's always getting his friends, and Philip, who doesn't know anything except math, if he can, if he can do him, then, then I'm pretty sure he can use you and me. If he can use Matthew, the traitor of the Jews, he can use you and me. If he can use a zealot that wants to murder and kill in order to advance a kingdom of love and peace, then he can use us, he can use me, he can use you. The Lord is the strength. Second, we put on the full armor of God, not part of it. And third, note from Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 here, that the enemy has schemes. Like some Sanballat and Tobiah, the enemy wants to sneak in, to lay down roots of bitterness, to establish secret sins, to create divisions in the body, to create distractions and confusion, and to kill the mission. That's what the enemy wants to do. But if we are focused on the Lord, we will withstand the schemes of the adversary. So, how does Nehemiah do this? Well, we have an example here in the horn. The horn blower that Nehemiah has next to him. In verse 18, the second half of verse 18. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. This is the one, the horn blower is the one who points out when the adversary is attacking. He's the one who is careful to make sure everybody knows what's going on. He blows his horn. This is the guy that is uncomfortable to have around because he's going to point out where things are wrong. This is the guy you need. The one you need who's going to blow the trumpet, who's going to call the alarm. 
Now, this is not to be confused with the nitpicker or the conspiracy theorist. I just want to be clear. These are two other people, and they don't get horns. We don't give those people horns. We don't give nitpickers and conspiracy theorists horns. We are careful about who we listen to. Not everything is a five five o'clock alarm. Like, not everything is a five-alarm fire. That's what I was thinking. Not everything's a big alarm. Not everything is an urgent issue. They might be issues, but they're not always urgent. So, we take our time, we pray, we're careful with what we hear, but when the horn blows, we gather to fight. This is the guy, the horn blower, is the guy who sees damaging sin, who asks you about personal things who challenges your personal activities. I love these people in my life. I have several of them that ask me hard questions, that know me deeply, and they know when I'm depressed. And yes, I get depressed. And they know, and they challenge me when I get depressed, and they encourage me when I get depressed. They blow the alarm when they see it coming. They will ask, hey, what's your schedule like in the next month? And if I rattle off a ton of stuff, They'll go, are you making sure that you have time to talk with Stephanie at night? Are you making sure that you have time to spend with your kids? Are you making sure that you have time to worship? These are great friends and they blow the horn for you and they wake you up. These are accountability people who when when done effectively, they gather the troops around you and they gather the people ready to fight. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, we are urged to use our freedom to serve one another and not bite and devour one another. You were given freedom, and it's for freedom you've been set free. Use that freedom to serve one another, not to bite and devour. Then in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, we are told that our quarrels and our fights come from our restless desires, our selfish, restless desires that need to be put asunder. When the horn blows, now, when the horn blows, it's everybody's responsibility to gather. Look at verse 19, and I, or sorry, verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. So we gather there, and then the next phrase that follows, our God will fight for us. Yes! Our God will fight for us. We don't have to count on my own strength my own wisdom, my own ability to solve things, my own skill. We don't have to count on that. God does it. God does it. God fights for you. Everyone ends up being responsible for everyone. And in the community of faith, we get this ending statement that everyone here is responsible for everybody else. We see in verse 20 that everybody rallies together And then in verse 21, So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each of us kept a weapon on his right hand. Now, we hold each other up. We have the spear, the sword, all day long. Some of us 
are charged with prote- protecting, praying, covering, singing, admonishing, loving one another, making sure that everybody's protected, holding a weapon all day long. And if you note what he says there, they never take off their clothes. They never take off their weapons. In fact, that last phrase in the Hebrew at the last, the bottom part, when I translated it, it gave me such a headache. It had such a massive, it's so weird. It says weapon and water. And the ESV decided to determine that that was a uh, kind of scribal way of saying at every moment the weapon is in his right hand. I don't understand how they got there. It seems more to me that Nehemiah is emphasizing that they even bathed with the weapons. Like they didn't even leave the weapons on the shore if they went to bathe. Everywhere they had, everywhere they were, they had their weapons. They were ready for battle. I tell you, Christian, we don't live in a place where it's a playground. We live in a battleground. And the weapons of our warfare are love and grace and kindness and patience and goodness and mercy recklessly to the world around us. That's the weapons that we carry. And we carry them all the time. When we bathe, when we lie down. You don't get to be crotchety. It's not allowed. You don't get to be crotchety and hateful and angry. We must blow the horn when we see that in each other. We must press against it. We must love above all else. We must love. And loving incorporates warning. Loving incorporates correcting because it's not loving to let your kid run to a train. Right? You admonish that. You spank that kid if they're running towards a train all the time. That's a life and death situation. So in our lives, we don't let each other run towards trains. We scream. And we definitely don't whisper, hey, it's not a good idea. Don't run towards the train. Oh, you're going to run? Okay, well, just stay on the other side of the track. Could you make sure that you don't get it? Get off before the train comes. No. You yank that kid off the tracks. You don't let them run towards the train. Same with you. I won't let you run towards trains. You won't let me run towards trains. It's a two-way street. Not just me. It's us. We don't let each other run towards trains. We encourage one another. We hold each other up as Moses, when Aaron and Hur held up his hands at the battle when Joshua was fighting. We hold each other up. We encourage one another. We love one another. We show grace to one another. We constantly show kindness to one another. Nehemiah there in verse 22 says, Every man and his servant. The work of the kingdom is always a team effort. The work of the kingdom is always a team effort. And the the gospel of Luke, when Jesus sends out his disciples, how does he do it? He pairs them up and sends them out. They go together. Twice. He does it over and over. They are always together. At night, they guard These guards guard at night. You need brothers and sisters who know who you are in the dark. Only then can they really watch your back. You need brothers and sisters who know who you are in the dark. If you are hiding things, it will come back to haunt you. Now listen, I just want to be real honest with all the men and the women in the room. If you're struggling with some secret sin that you've been keeping secret, And you need someone to talk to about it. You need to confess it to somebody. I am here. My wife is here. 
We know how to battle sin. And we will get in it with you. We will battle it with you. We will fight with you. If you don't trust anybody else in the room, you can trust that from me. That nothing you confess and say to me is going to surprise me. I do not think highly of people. I do not think that you are awesome. But I know Jesus and I know he lives in you. And he's awesome. I do not think highly of people. And I know that I don't think highly of myself either. But I serve an incredible God who can move in both of us. If you need help, if you are struggling in secret sin, stop struggling alone. Tell somebody. And if you don't have anybody else to tell, you call me, pull me aside. And I will walk through it with you. And I promise it won't leave my ears. It won't, it won't leave me unless it's life-threatening. It won't leave me. It'll stay with me. We fight with each other in the dark, just like Nehemiah arranged them to fight in the dark. Finally, they were always armed, even when they were washing and sleeping. Now, we fight with the knowledge of God's sovereign work. Here we... Sorry, those were the notes from the previous portion I just ran through. So, we've got these three things, and then finally, in conclusion, we want to fight with these things in mind. We fight with the knowledge of God's sovereign hand. When you saw over and over in the book of Nehemiah, our God fights for us, God frustrated their plans. God is the one who is in sovereign control. He's the one winning the war. Jesus is the victor. Jesus has claimed the victory. It's his victory. He did it. We're his because he claimed the victory. We fight with the knowledge of God's sovereign hand. We fight alongside our brothers and sisters because sometimes you hold a sword and sometimes you hold a shovel. And sometimes you can't do both. And you have a sword and you have a job. You have a weapon and you have a job. You have armor. And you have a job of loving and kindness and and building the kingdom. And sometimes you can't pull out the sword at the same time you're shoveling the dirt. So you need brothers and sisters who will hold the other one with you. Who will watch your back and who will cover you. You need that because Jesus Christ has made us this way. And then finally we win because Jesus has already given us the victory. Jesus Christ died on the cross that you might be free of sin. Think about that. Free of sin. That sin would be dead and obliterated, according to Romans chapter 6. That it would be obliterated from your life. That you would have victory. As First John says, I write this to you, little children, that you may not sin, not even once. Love that line. If you pause right there, it sounds so daunting. That you would never sin, not even one time. But when you do, We have an advocate before the Father who intercedes on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, he has rescued us. He has saved us. He has made us his. He has made us holy and cleansed us from every unrighteousness and every sin. If we trust in him, we have salvation. We have salvation. And not only do we have salvation, but we get to continue to work in the kingdom and grow in the kingdom and be a part of the glory of God's kingdom on the earth. Oh, that we would be such a people. Oh, that we would have such grace.